reading is from 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 33. Therefore, my dear friends, free from the worship of idols, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful. But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of others. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you are disposed to go... Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean the other's conscience, not your own, for why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whatever you drink or eat or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offence to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not see, not seeking Uh, my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Please be seated. If we're living in a free country, we should be free to do what we want to do, if we're not hurting anyone else or their property. Why should I be incarcerated if I'm doing something that doesn't hurt anyone else? It's a commonly held point of view, And I'm allowing the actor Woody Harrelson to speak on behalf of the many people who hold that as a way of life, who adopt it as a kind of moral code. I can do what I like, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone or affect anyone adversely. It was a a kind of mantra banded around a lot in the 70s, I suppose, by those who wanted to be liberated from what they saw as the oppressive stifling of their freedom by an outdated moral code. It was frequently cited by those who wanted to adopt a fairly promiscuous lifestyle, so long as it was practised by consenting adults. 
But actually, once the AIDS crisis hit in the early 1980s, people went a bit quiet because suddenly it became apparent that what had been perceived as very harmless behaviour had actually contributed to the spread of a pretty devastating epidemic. Unbeknown to them, it had harmed a lot of people. And the problem with saying it's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anyone is it's actually hugely difficult to foresee how my behaviour will affect other people. You can't always tell. Another issue with this particular pr- approach is it's, it's actually quite self-centred, if not totally self-centred. I can do whatever I want. The only restraint on my behaviour is it shouldn't adversely affect anyone else. But actually we're all connected to each other in a thousand different ways. None of us is so isolated that our behaviour doesn't have a knock-on effect on those around us. There are debates online about whether this is a good moral code to live by or not. And certainly on the website debate.org, the principle that adults should be able to do what they want as long as it doesn't affect others was voted down by a majority of 57 to 43%. I quite like one response which dismissed it as libertarian nonsense. Unless you live alone in a cave in the woods, far away from society, and you don't have a job... Your actions affect others through sick days, increased medical costs because of drug abuse, etc. So if you live in a cave far away from society and you don't work for a company and all your relatives are dead, then go for it. The problem is that none of us lives in that degree of isolation from everybody else. And whatever we do does have an impact on others, either negatively or positively. I like the term moral fabric, which I think conveys this idea quite well, though I don't know who coined the phrase. Someone suggested it as a new phrase in the Collins English Dictionary back in 2013, but it was in use long before then. The image of moral fabric conveys the idea that we are all interconnected, that all the members of society are woven together into a single piece of cloth. No man is an island, as John Donne put it a long time ago. The thing about a piece of fabric is that if you press on it at any one point, the whole fabric moves. And whatever any single one person does, that affects everybody else with whom they are connected. There is a knock-on effect on society as a whole. Sociologists have been grappling a bit with this idea. Back in 2003, a book was published entitled The Moral Fabric in Contemporary Societies. And in the essay which gave the book its name, its author talks about a paradigm shift in perceptions of how societies function. So that whereas the idea of a moral fabric was once regarded with suspicion, instead the question was now being asked, is it at all possible to have a society without a moral fabric, composed of values, norms, social ideals, visions and missions that bind social actors together and inspire their actions. Actually, aren't we all connected in some way by the, vision, by the values that we hold? And so if I hold very negative values, that will somehow have an effect on those around me. And when it comes to our collective identity and the quality of our social life, all kinds of values, norms and beliefs come into play. Things like trust, trauma, hope, pride, 
guilt, shame, hunger, social divisions, corruption, memories both personal and collective. All these things aren't just things that I have as an individual. All these things are things that somehow I share with those around me. And I influence them and they in turn influence me. Whatever I do will have an impact on other people because I don't live in complete isolation. We are bound together in a host of different intangible ways from which we cannot escape, which actually make it very difficult to live meaningfully by the principle that I can do what I like as long as no one else is affected by it. Because whatever I do does affect other people. And if I behave negatively, that has a knock-on negative effect on them. Well, what does any of this have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, you get the feeling that some of the people in Corinth would have embraced that moral code. I can do what I like. All things are lawful for me, so long as nobody else gets hurt. They valued their own personal freedom and put liberty firmly in the driving seat. And what Paul says at the end of chapter 10 is that actually this won't do because we're all connected in a host of different ways. So yes, he grants them there is scope for personal freedom. And actually, he gives them, in some ways, a lot more license than we have when it comes to shopping, if we're to be responsible consumers. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, he says, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You're free to do that. The issue they were grappling with was whether the meat they bought had been used in a religious ritual or not. He tells them they don't need to probe too deeply into that issue when they do their shopping. No one knows whether traders identified where their meat came from, whether this particular cut came from that particular temple. But Paul says, you don't need to bother about that. You're free to do your shopping without bothering about what, where what you buy comes from. But we actually, these days, if we do our shopping, we're not quite comfortable with that degree of liberty, are we? At least if we're going to be responsible consumers. We want to know that the meat we're going to buy isn't going to make us ill that the animals have been humanely treated, that the farmers concerned have not been exploited. It hasn't been shipped halfway around the world to get to us. So especially in the middle of fair trade fortnights, we need to be aware that we are at the end of a very long consumer chain. And we are linked, in terms of what we buy, with everyone engaged in the process that starts with the animal being farmed and ends up as meat on our table. We're not simply free to buy without a second thought of how our spending habits affect all those involved in producing what we consume. In today's society, we need to go further than Paul does here, actually. In the marketplace, we can't just buy what we want without a thought about where it comes from. We need to be aware, because we are aware today, in a way that he wasn't at the time, of just how interconnected we are right the way down the consumer chain, back to the people who may well have been exploited right at the beginning. But Paul also places personal restrictions on the freedom that we have in terms of the impact our behaviour has on those around us. So you may be sitting at a party, tucking into your T-bone steak, and someone whispers in your ear, did you know that this meat was sacrificed in an act of worship to an idol? Well, that may not be an issue for you, but it is for the other person. And because none of us operates in a moral vacuum, he says, you should curtail your moral freedom to accommodate their scruples. The law of love trumps the law of personal freedom 
every time. Otherwise, even if you're freely enjoying a meal for which you've given thanks, if your behaviour is creating a problem with someone else, then you should amend your behaviour. Otherwise, you're flaunting your liberty in their face. And that's not the Christian way. You may disagree quite fundamentally with their point of view, but they are still worthy of respect. And you show respect to them by the way in which you respond to what they say. So, personal freedom. Well, we need to be aware of how we're linked with other people in terms of what we buy. Personal freedom. But how is my behaviour going to impact on someone who sees me doing what I'm doing? I need to take that into account as well. And for Paul, it's the Lord's Supper, actually, which symbolises this interconnectedness we have with other people and with the Lord. When we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, it's not just me and Jesus at that point. It's not just my own personal expression of my faith in Christ. It's not a me moment at all. Far from it. Paul says the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing together in the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not a sharing together in the body of Christ? We who are many are all one body because we all share in the one loaf that represents the body of Christ. Communion is a social as well as a personal occasion. That's expressed, by the way, at least in the Baptist church, that we share in a loaf of bread rather than each of us own having our own individual wafer. That loaf of bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. And the way we all share in the same loaf of bread which represents the body of Christ reflects the way in which we all share together in the body of Christ. Communion is a communal celebration. It expresses, yes, our connectedness to Christ, but also our connectedness to each other as well. It's the way in which we recognise we are all linked with those around us. And Paul pushes it further. There's a sense in which when we share the bread and wine with each other, we are sharing spiritually in Christ. There is a real connection with Jesus. Spiritual link to Jesus as well as being connected socially with each other. And that's why Paul has real problems actually with people participating in meals held in pagan temples. If you're celebrating communion, you are participating in Christ. Well, if you're having a meal in a pagan temple, you are sharing that meal not just with others at the table, but also you are participating in whatever deity happens to be honoured at that temple. And Paul is distinctly uncomfortable with this. You can't sit down at the Lord's table and at a table where demons are honoured. There is a need for a moral and spiritual boundary here. Because eating food at that place establishes a spiritual connection which is incompatible with your participation in Christ. Eating in Jesus' name binds us to Jesus. Eating the bread and drinking the wine binds us to each other. At the end of the day, none of us is an autonomous individual. We are all deeply, irrevocably connected to each other and to some kind of spiritual power, whether that power is Christ himself or a power that finds expression in the ideology of secularisation. Yes, I am free in Christ, but being in Christ curtails that freedom because my devotion is to Christ as Lord and he calls me to use my freedom responsibly in the service of others. 
And at the end of the day, that the idea that I'm free to do what I want, as long as it doesn't affect anybody else, also fails, because what lies at its core is my freedom to do what I want to do. My only responsibility towards anyone else is to try and avoid hurting them. It's a code of limited selfishness. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to adopt a code of active altruism. My priority is not, how much can I enjoy myself without affecting anybody else? Actually, I am called actively to seek the well-being of those around me. How can I live in a way that enhances the life of other people? And before you think that's a bit crazy, actually there is research which has shown that altruistic, other-regarding emotions and behaviours are associated with greater well-being, health and longevity. The more you put yourself out for other people, the better it is actually for you. It's paradoxical, but it seems to be true. How does it work? Altruism results in deeper and more positive social integration. Distraction from personal problems and the anxiety of self-preoccupation. There are enhanced meaning and purpose as related to well-being and a more active lifestyle that counters cultural pressures towards isolated passivity and the presence of positive emotions such as kindness that displace harmful negative emotional states. It's good for you. Gives you a sense of well-being. Enables you to use your time effectively. Distraction from all the things that bind you up and tie you down. It's all part of the way in which we are wired. So the best route to my own personal well-being is not to pursue as much as I want without upsetting everybody else. The best route to my own sense of well-being, paradoxically, paradoxically, is actively to seek the good of those around me. And that's precisely the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 10. He quotes and corrects the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful. Well, maybe but not all things are beneficial and not everything builds up. Don't seek your own advantage, but that of others. The moral code for followers of Jesus is not about how much I can indulge myself without upsetting somebody else. It's about actively seeking what is beneficial to those around me, what is going to build them up, what is to their advantage, what is pleasing to them. As Paul puts it in the last verse of the chapter, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. So let me revert to the idea of moral fabric for a bit, because we are all interconnected. We are woven together into the moral fabric of a church and a society. We never act in isolation, ever. Whatever you do, has an impact on those around you. Whatever you do has an impact on those who contribute to the experience that you are having. Whatever we do has a positive or negative impact on society and the world. That's why we need actively to be involved in doing what is good. Because all of our individual acts of kindness of seeking the well-being, the advantage, the benefit of other people, all of those little things that we do play their incremental part in sewing up the moral fabric of society which has been worn away by the abrasive idea that each of us should be free to do whatever we want as individuals 
as long as we just check that we're not hurting anyone in the process. Such a limited selfishness is leaving the moral fabric of our society frayed and damaged. We're called to be different. We're called to recognise that we are all connected with each other as we give expression to that at the Lord's table. And as we all play our part in actively seeking the good of those around us, we repair, we restore, we mend the moral fabric of society, as well as doing good to others and to ourselves in the process. Following Christ is not about my freedom. Following Christ is about what is good for others. Because what is good for others is good for you as you serve Christ. That's the Christian ethic by which we are called to live. Not my own freedom. It's not all about me. It's about Jesus. And Jesus says it has to be about those around you as well. All connected to each other and to him. And we're called to play our part in upholding the moral fabric of the society in which we live. And we do that by actively seeking what is good for others, not indulging ourselves. Let's close by singing number 2417. Longing for light, we wait in darkness. Longing for truth, we turn to you. Make us your own, your holy people, light for the world to see. Let's ask that Christ would make us his light as we sing this closing song. Book 5, 2417, please. Five. It's the orange one. At some point. They've got it on the desk, though. <laughs> Are we good to go?